In this episode, we're talking about Agenda 2030. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. Globalists have been working toward a one world government for a very long time. Globalism, the idea that nation states and borders need to give way to international governing institutions is very real. For a perfect example, check out the United Nations Agenda 2030 plan. This grand 40 plus page plan consists of 17 purported goals, which include the total eradication of global poverty, education for every boy and girl in the world, universal access to abortions and healthcare, and of course, an all hands on deck approach to the scary climate change boogeyman. Each of the 17 goals is broken down into a laundry list of additional steps and sub goals, more rules. A lot of thought went into this. That's obvious. No doubt, starry-eyed idealists who've been bludgeoned their entire life with talk of unfairness and inequality and poverty will read Agenda 2030 and be encouraged. After all, why would any sensible person argue with eradicating poverty, with providing access to health care for everyone, and clean air? The supposed goal of Agenda 2030 is essentially utopia. No poverty, no wars, work for everyone, health care for everyone— even transparent, non-corrupt government. They actually threw that in there. <laughs> Check it out. It's under goal 16. It makes you wonder if someone pointed out that even the most unaware citizen knows how corrupt the UN is, and they threw that in there just for good measure. Utopia is very dangerous. Be wary of people hawking utopia. A sobering lesson of history is that the most tragic of tragedies have been powered by elitists with grand plans for everyone else. It's the ones with the big ideas on how everyone else should live that we should be very, very wary of, especially if they have an army at their disposal. I was born in Utopia, a country controlled by maniacal bureaucrats who had the gall to dictate how farmers should farm, how factories should operate, how educators should educate, and how religious leaders should preach. And because they proved utterly beyond incompetent in playing the role of the market, there were constant national rations on gas, bread, meat, and even electricity. The government also jailed and even killed dissidents. It threw many in labor camps and it tortured them without remorse. They even banned Chuck Norris movies and punished people who were caught watching them. Like every totalitarian country, communist Romania was a hellhole. If the borders weren't guarded by soldiers with AK-47s around the clock, there would have been a mass exodus and they'd have nobody to rule over. Communism's greatest accomplishment is a trail of corpses so long no one is even sure of the near exact number. Some experts say that that number, the amount of people killed by communist regimes, is about 200 million. Others say it's higher. Maybe you're listening to this and you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Agenda 2030? Communism, like all genocidal movements, started out as an idea about how to have a more equal society. Commies talked about eradicating poverty and inequality, just like the angelic visionaries at the United Nations. Communists, like the Agenda 2030 planners, also aim to provide people with equal access to land. That's how we got the collectives, and that's how we got millions of people starving to death. Both include control of where people can live. Both have massive links to corruption. The United Nations has a long line of people charging sexual and violent crimes against them by UN soldiers, and the United Nations system has been pretty impotent in dealing with it. 
And communism is still a thing. China harvests the organs of its people and throws religious minorities in internment camps. Venezuela is a mess thanks to Marxist policies. And the Cuban government is nabbing people protesting for freedom off the streets. I can do this all day long, but we have an interview to get to. So, Agenda 2030 is an idea that would create a global totalitarian hellhole. It would not be restricted to a country or a group of countries. One of the topics that Art and I will discuss is whether there is any binding power to it, because that's obviously important. And because those who dismiss Agenda 2030's malevolent intent like to say that there's no binding power to it, and those who are concerned about it are just John Birch Society kooks. And let's not casually pass over the fact that an influential and powerful international body, again, with an army at its disposal, has the gall to put in writing a plan that would require control over every aspect of your life, from what you can eat to where you can live to how you can get around to what your children would be thought. These people exist. They're very powerful. And they're telling you this is what they want. So without further ado, I'd like to play the interview with Art. Art Thompson is the former CEO of the John Burr Society and the author of a pile of books on the conspiracy's plan for one world totalitarian government. One of Art's more recent books is the UN's Agenda 2030, Marxist Stealth Plan for World Government. Despite its abbreviated length, it packs quite a punch. So let's see what Art has to say about Agenda 2030. Art, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Can we start with a short overview? What's Agenda 2030? Well, Agenda 2030 is something that's just renamed from Agenda 21 and that sort of thing. They've always had these various titles uh, for the same program, which is uh, environmentalism. You know, the planet is dying movement, and uh, it is basically a, a program to bring control over the entire globe of the, the activities of the human race in their property, in their transportation, in their eating habits, uh, even in birth control and all sorts of things of that nature. Uh, And this is just the latest uh, name that they've given to it. Now they're segueing even into a newer name, uh, which we can discuss in a moment. What do they claim it is? I can't imagine that they're out front and saying that this is a a power grab and and total control over your lives. Well, no, they don't put it that way. But if you read the publications that they have put together, both official ones through various governments, such such as the United Nations, even our federal government, and in, in the books by the leaders of the environmental movement, you will see that they mean to save the earth because it's going to die within 10 to 12 years or whatever time period that somebody picks at any given moment. But in order to save the earth, what they're saying is that we have to be able to control the emissions, the carbon emissions, for instance, from automobiles and manufacturing and and that sort of thing. Uh, What people grow, how much they grow, uh, where they live, uh, what kind of uh, transportation they use. If we're going to cut back on carbon emissions, we're going to have to cut back on the use of the automobile using gasoline, right? Or flying in an airplane and, and things of that nature. So what we see is in the name of, of eliminating carbon emissions, it is actually control over the travel, at least, of the people. They're not going to be able to come and go as they once did, which gives tremendous control by the government over the freedom of travel of the citizen 
And that's just one category. And we could discuss other categories as well. So in your book, you mentioned that not everyone who advocates for or brings or works to bring the goals of Agenda 2030 has bad intentions. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, most people have good intentions, don't they? And, and so what the environmental leadership has done is use the good intentions of individuals to climb aboard the bandwagon of what is called sustainable development. People, they don't want to see the environment destroyed. They don't want to see the pristine uh, in, uh, scenery that we see as we cross our country destroyed and, and that sort of thing. They have been convinced into believing that all of that can come to an end unless we control all of property, uh, control the, the growing and, and the reaping uh, and, and everything else that has to do with land. People are convinced that everybody is a monster when it comes to being an industrialist if they own a piece of property uh, which on that property has a, a uh, iron uh, ore mine, that kind of thing, that they will strip mine the place and just leave it a dirty, dusty hole in the middle of the, of the earth. And so they show them pictures of that and get these people who are really concerned about you know the environment they want to see a nice place to live and, and all of that. They convince them that this is the what, what is being done to the earth. We've got to stop it, and so we're going to have to control the environment uh, from people that doing this sort of thing to our earth. And so there are a lot of good people, particularly the young, who believe in, in all of these things because that's what they've been taught in school. That's the images they see on television and that sort of thing. So not everybody involved in the environmental movement really has the idea of controlling the individual to the extent of a totalitarian state. That is in the leadership of the environmental movement, not in the followers. They really believe in what they're, what they're doing. They're just being misled. They, they haven't been shown the other side of the coin, if you will, of what this can mean to the average person and what it will mean to the earth in itself if we allow controls like this to develop around the world. Well, speaking of leadership, in your book you mention that some of those involved in, in the environmental movement have or have some sort of Marxist ties. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, I can just use one example that's so blatant. For instance, the last communist dictator of Russia was Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, once the so-called collapse of communism occurred in Russia, the first thing he did was form this green initiative, the Green Cross movement, uh, uh, in the environmental area. And he is now one of the leading environmental leaders uh, around the world. He's pulled a lot of Americans into it. They've even given him an office at the Presidio Fort in San Francisco and that sort of thing. So there are a lot of open Marxists in this movement. Now that's at the top. Now in my own experience as well, I have seen uh, communists who were in the streets in the 60s uh, creating violence in my hometown who became uh, involved in the environmental movement, went from the streets into the environmental movement and became environmental leaders but they didn't change the fact that they belonged to the Socialist Workers Party and, uh, and so on and so forth. So both at the top and at the bottom, 
you see the Marxists involved in the environmental movement. It's called the UN's Agenda 2030. Mm-hmm. Is that where the biggest push for this is coming? Is it the UN? And who are the who's pushing this? Well, the ultimate goal of all the environmentalists is, and if you read, ignore online, by the way, and prove this to yourself, just look it up on the internet, every environmental organization wants the implementation of their program to be centered within the jurisdiction of the United Nations. Everybody. And so uh, if you go to the United Nations, you'll see that they have set out a whole program. Uh, It's about 70 pages long, plus or minus. And if you go to the federal government, the United States government, and, and look up the same thing, it'll be shorter but it'll be a reflection of that United Nations program. And all down through the system of those institutions which are promoting a sustainable development is a reflection of this United Nations idea. Uh, they're all there. It, it's just a matter of boiling it down, making it a digest, because nobody wants to read 70 pages of this stuff. After reading Agenda 2030, I looked over the World Economic Forum's Great Reset website. And uh, I noticed quite a few similarities, including this talk of equity, uh, equal outcome, uh, talk about building green urban infrastructure, and both talk about access to, to vaccines and, and general health care, universal health care. Are the Great Reset and Agenda 2030 related? Yes, they are. In fact, actually, that is the new name for Agenda 2030 is the Great Reset. Uh, they are now building on the idea of the pandemic controls that occurred in the pa- uh, the viral pandemic of 2019 and 2020, where they have gotten the American people and the world, as far as that is concerned, to stand still for all manners of controls, which violate, by the way, the Bill of Rights. Uh, we never thought that they would do things that would violate the Bill of Rights, but but they did violate the Bill of Rights in some of these shutdowns and how they did them and so on and so forth. And they were not laws, by the way. They were edicts, executive orders, sign a piece of paper, do as you're told. And uh, at any rate, the Great Reset is a reset from that pandemic controls into more controls regarding the environment. In other words, now that we've got the people conditioned to take, uh, take controls, in the name of a pandemic, now we can get them to take controls in the name of the uh, environment. And it's all based on fear. They always use fear as the motivator. In other words, during a time of war, people will stand still for things they wouldn't stand still for in the, in the matter of control, taxation, rationing, so on and so forth, in the name of winning the war, in, in, for fear of losing the war. And they will do it in the name of terrorism. Now they've done it in the name of a pandemic. And now they want to use the fear of losing the environment for human habitat to have controls over human beings in the name of that habitat. Yeah, let's talk about implementation because one of the most common criticisms against those of us who take Agenda 2030 seriously is that there's no binding power. You know, it's a resolution. There's... There's no way to, to push this on people. Is, is that true? Is there any power? Is there any teeth behind Agenda 2030, this environmental crazy movement? Well, is there controls? Do they have power? Yes, they do. 
I mean, take again, again the, the example of the pandemic. There was no power that they could use to enforce us to wear masks, to shut down businesses, uh, shut down travel, uh, so on and so forth. And yet they did. They used the power of government to just simply state an edict and force everyone to do it. And they got a lot of the, the big businesses uh, to go along with it. And they implemented it through a lot of their coercion, through their their use of, of big business to do it. Yeah, they let the big businesses stay open, but the big businesses put those you know, placards on the front of their entrances saying you got to wear a mask, or if you're not vac- vaccinated, or et cetera, et cetera, you can't come in, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's so f- gone so far now in places like New Zealand and in Australia, uh, Australia that they've completely shut down those countries. I mean, they had one lousy guy get infected with this new variant of the of the virus, and they shut the whole country down of New Zealand as a result. It's ridiculous. And people comply. You can say they have no power, there are no laws, so on and so forth, but if the government says it, people tend to obey it. And it's been done over and over again, and again, it's being used, being done by the use of fear. The people fear so much that they're going to get a disease that they will comply with any regulation that will prevent them from getting that disease in their mind. And it's the same way with the environment. If we can convince the people, by we, I mean the leadership of the environmental movement, if we can convince the people that they will die in 10 to 12 years. If we don't do something about the environment, then the people will comply with all sorts of controls. Do you have one or two specific uh, examples that show that Agenda 30, the goals of Agenda 30, are already being implemented? Well, they're already being implemented through our federal government. See, the thing is that even now, if you take a look at the edicts that have been put together in the White House, if you go to the White House website, to their fact sheet, you'll see that they are already trying to implement the idea of getting rid of all uh, uh, gas-driven cars and into electric cars. And so more and more you see this being done in our high, on our highways. All you have to do is go down a freeway and you can start to see more and more electric cars rather than gas-driven cars. So it is slowly being implemented. And it's being done by, and people are buying these cars and using these cars because they think that they're going to help save the environment. Uh, It's also being done in areas where uh, certain land is being restricted, that you can't go there because uh, it's wetland or or, or something like that. We're, We're seeing farms where you can't farm because for a certain time of the year, uh, there's water on there because of spring thaw. And uh, those are all environmental edicts. Uh, And those things are becoming more and more of a problem where people can't even use their farmland because of such edicts. And there are all sorts of things like that. Uh, Simple things like zoning even. Uh, You know, you would think it kind of works in reverse in, in some instances too. Instead of letting things grow, they even have uh, programs where you can't let things grow. For instance, uh, noxious weeds. 
you've got you can be fined if if they show up on your lawn and you don't do something about them, or even not mowing your grass and and that sort of thing. Uh, in one town in Florida, for instance, they had this uh, edict where uh, the they had a, a zoning law that said you had to mow your grass. If you don't mow your grass, it's three hundred dollars a day uh, fine. And so. All sorts of things are creeping into where they can control what you do with your land and your property, including the foliage on that land. Well, speaking of, in the resolution, in Goal 11, it says that one of the aims is to enhance inclusive and sustainable urbanization and capacity for participatory, integrated, and sustainable human settlement planning and management in all countries and to provide access to green and public spaces. It sounds like it's kind of what you're talking about. Is that what this is? Actually, if you dissect that and and if you think it through, if you start to apply logic to what they've just said in glittering generalities, what they're really saying there is that they're going to be moving people from their habitat they have now to a future type of habitat that meets the approval of the environmentalists, which is, by the way, apartments. It's the same in Marxist countries. If you go into the cities in Marxist countries, everybody lives in apartments, pretty much. And it's the same way on the farms. Nobody lives out uh, on the farms anymore. They're all gathered into communes and so on and so forth. So the people are, are, are brought into concentration in urban and rural areas and then the, you have the green space, right? So you'll have all these nice uh, lawns around the apartment houses and so on and so forth. They'll do away with the suburbs uh, and, and let it return to its natural state, the, in other words, green areas and so on and so forth. And then they can control people better. They don't need the type of transportation that they would if they lived in suburbia. Suburbia grew because of two things. Uh, Well, actually three. The first one was the desire to own property. But secondly, the roads and the automobiles improved to where they were reliable, to where you could drive back and forth to work. Well, You don't need to drive back and forth to work if you live in a nice apartment complex and you've got a bus line that goes from where you are to where you work. And that's the the plan that they ultimately have in mind. If you read all of these plans, by the way, and I encourage everybody to do so, go online and look at what the federal government says, look at what the UN says. They never, ever mention the fact of the individual owning an automobile. It's not there. They just hope that you will not notice it because they are going to provide you with alternative means uh, of transportation. But they don't say it in that. They say we are going to explore uh, more diversified methods of, of transportation. Well, what are more diversified methods? Anything other than the automobile. And so you won't be able to go down to your garage, get in your car, and drive wherever you want, whenever you want, for whatever length you want, uh, you'll be tied to public transportation. That's what a lot of this is all about. But it's couched in all these glittering generalities. You just got to think these things through when you read them because it sounds so wonderful, but it's not. I read the document. I believe it's somewhere around 40 pages. And there was a, a lot of talk of, like you said, these seemingly great things among, you know, 
eradicating poverty, universal health care, and obviously the environment, and even talked about civil rights. I don't think there is one mention of the word liberty. So I, I wanted to throw that in there. And I also wanted to throw in a story about you were talking about apartments. I spent the first eight years of my life in a communist country in Romania, and I also wrote a book with a friend who defected the same year that I was born. And so when I was doing the research for that book and when he was talking to me, one of the things that he talked about was how they, the communist government of Romania under Ceausescu at the time was moving people from the country into the apartments. Uh, They had built these apartments and the description of the apartments, I think it's important to note that they were, they were obviously, they were dull and whatnot, but one of the most glaring things about this description was that they didn't come with bathrooms. They actually built these apartments. They crammed people into these bathrooms, I mean, into these apartments, but they didn't have bathrooms. They, out, they had outhouses. That's how Marxists, uh, they do things, you know, communists and whatnot. So uh, maybe someone's hearing this and they're thinking, well, that's great. You know, you get moved into an apartment. I uh, just wanted to give you maybe a little bit of a historical context. Okay, so going deeper into just a few more questions about the document. Like I said, it's about 40 pages. It's not the longest document. We like we encourage people to read it in it. There's also a lot of talk about gender equality and inclusivity. And like I mentioned earlier, eradicating poverty uh, and ensuring universal access to sexual and reproductive health care services and uh, universal health care in general. And it really emphasizes all these actions and benefits that must apply, especially to poorer countries. There is a lot of emphasis on that. Who is paying for universal abortions and to eradicate global poverty? In order to find out who's paying for all of this, all you have to do is get up and go look at a mirror because that's who's going to be paying for it. You know, you can talk about eradicating the poor and all of that, but that's another way of saying everybody must work. You know, there's some people that don't need to work. Uh, they, they live off uh, the means that they have. Uh, but in a Marxist state, everybody must work. That's, that's the, the way it is. As far as gender equality and everything else, women will have to do the tasks that were usually in the past were confined to men, doing things that men used to do. Uh, that they may not want to do uh, in industry, uh, in construction, uh, in the army, and so on and so forth. And and so the whole idea of society is is upended with this idea of gender equality. A lot of women haven't thought through the idea of being equal to men. Uh, they, They think, well, that just means that I'll have the same stature as a man in public and and so on and so forth. But in a Marxist state, that means you will do the same work that a man does. And just that's the way it is. Another goal of Agenda 2030 that I wanted to touch on was in goal two, it says it wants to end hunger. And it says the plan is to double the agricultural productivity and incomes of small scale food producers including through secure and equal access to land. When I read that, my first thought was that, boy, that sounds a lot like the agrarian reform of, you know, Soviet Russia and China under Mao Zedong. What's your take on that? Anytime that you're talking about, you know, uh, the access of land and so on and so forth, basically what you're saying is we're going to take it away from those people who own it now and give it to the people in the name of the people. 
and that usually means communes. I mean, this has always been what they've done. They've never done it any way uh, other than that uh, in, in the history of, of Marxism. And that's what they're talking about in, in these things by saying it a little bit differently to get you to think that they mean something that's going to be available for everyone. Well, it may be available for everyone, but you will be the everyone working out there in the fields with everyone else uh, on a common farm, commune in other words. That's usually what comes out of these language, these types of language. If history isn't in any indication, it's not as if you're actually going to get someone else's land and you can freely do what you want. This will be more like collectivist, a, a collective. You will do what they tell you to do. You will grow what they tell you to grow. You will grow it in the amount they tell you to, uh, to grow it, uh, so on and so forth. And you will not be allowed to keep it for yourself because it will be for the people. In fact, you will not be an individual within the system anyway doing all of this. You will be part of a, a gang, a crew, a commune of people out there doing all of this. So we're going to have bureaucrats telling farmers how to grow food and feed the world. How did that work out in communist countries, Art? It never has worked out. They've always starved as a result. But it's also a problem in the United States. It's a growing problem because our federal government will also tell people how much they may be able to grow the growing regulations of, of what a farmer can and cannot do is, is astronomical. And, and a lot of times they will come and tell people you can't grow wheat, for instance, or, or not wheat because you can't feed that to cattle, but you can't grow grain just to feed to your cattle. That's illegal in, in many areas now and that kind of thing. Uh, so there are regulations over what people can even grow in our country. Most people don't notice it. They've gotten used to it, but nonetheless, it's there. And, uh, and so we see that creeping in uh, right now. Uh, in addition to that, by the way, is the fact that many of these people who are in the environmental movement, who are leaders in the environmental movement, are now buying up a lot of farmland, which has to beg the question, why are they doing that? If these controls are coming down over the land, and they are advocating these controls, why are they out there, billionaires, buying up a lot of farmland? You know, farmland owned by an individual family is disappearing in this country, and more and more conglomerates are growing and growing and growing, and uh, those controls over what a people uh, can grow and where they sell it and everything else, uh, the laws over that are growing as well. Well, not too long ago, there was uh, stories being written about how one of the biggest landowners of farmland was Bill Gates. That's right. Bill Gates, as far as we know, is not a farmer, right? Why is Bill Gates buying, why is he buying so much farmland? Well, maybe he knows something that we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I I thought that was just, that was very interesting. It's like, I didn't know he was into that. So. I think anyone, whatever whatever questions there may be about implementation, how much power there is, and I, and I think that, that that's up for the debate. I think anyone who would read this can see that there is clearly, this would require massive amount of control. And another thing that I think is clear, really clear, is that there is at least an endorsement by the United Nations. So it, even... Whatever you may think of of the TIF to implement this, it is endorsed by the United Nations. 
who has massive influence over over global and and regional politics. So with that being said, is there any pushback? Are are communities pushing back on this? Have people realized that we don't want this? Whatever you say of it, we don't want this. We want to push back now. In my book, for instance, before we get into that, I point out to where a lot of these things are in violation of our Bill of Rights. They're actually taking away our Bill of Rights through the implementation of the environmental program. And so a lot of people recognize that when it's pointed out to them, but it has to be pointed out to them. And so it gets down to where people like ourselves have to uh, educate others as to what's really going on and how this can be very detrimental to their freedom in the long run. And when it comes to the United Nations, if we go into a point where the United Nations controls everything, then we are going to see something terrible happen because we get back to that old saying that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There will be no contravening power to stop that corruption if we only have a single one-world government. And we will go into a, a, a dark age as a result of it because we will not be able to be free against that power structure. And so there are a lot of people that are beginning to understand that. And we've had some victories over a period of time with this as well. For instance, just the various uh, name changes of what they are implementing demonstrates the fact that they have to change the names on these things to keep people ignorant of what's going on. They start out with sustainable development, and then they go into uh, Agenda 21. Now they're into Agenda 2030, and then it's now uh, evolving into the Great Reset. So they keep having to change the name to be able to fool the people as to what's going on. Because once the people understand what uh, Agenda 21 is, they don't like it. So we've got to change the name. We'll change it to something else. And then we've got to re-educate them. Another one is ICLE, the uh, International Committee for, for Control over the Environment. It, 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 these are local committees run by the United Nations, uh, and they are involved in local governments. And ICLE is uh, a, a lot of city councils, county commissioners, uh, and that sort of thing have joined ICLE around the country. And ICLE gives them uh, the impetus to impose on the local people through local ordinances what the UN wants in the way of environmental controls. And so what we did in the John Birch Society, as well as a lot of other people, we started to inform people about the dangers of ICLE. We told them to go to the ICLE website to see whether your city, whether your county was a member of ICLE, and if it was, organized to get out of it. And a lot of people started to do that. And it got to the point where twice as many people were getting out of ICLE as joining ICLE. And so ICLE had to change its website. They no longer showed that they were an international organization, and they no longer showed what cities in the United States belonged to ICLE so that the local people could find out and thus form an organization locally to get their city council or their county commissioners to drop their membership. So we have these little local victories like that 
when we can demonstrate what is really going on, but it takes a local organization of people to do that, to inform their local citizens, particularly their opinion molders, even their city council and county commissioners, because you'd be surprised how often members of the city council and, and members of the board of commissioners don't even know that they're involved in things like this, that it's been imposed upon them by their own staff, and they didn't know that. Uh, there's been a lot of these people. And by the way, sometimes the, the people in the, com- in the councils, in the commissions, have changed through different elections. You have different people over a period of time. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they don't realize that they are already members of this organization and they are appalled by it, but it's been kept from them uh, in the way that it's been processed through to get them to pass local ordinances. They didn't realize that these local ordinances being proposed by their staff came from ICLEI, from the UN. They didn't know that. You were talking about total corruption. I just wanted to point out, Art, that one of their resolutions is to have transparent and a non-corrupt government. So how could it be? <laughs> right. I, I, I love that you share those stories about ICLEI. I remember I saw that a few years ago, and I, I believe the Montana, there was a Montana city that was in, in one of those videos. Let's wrap it up with that. What are some, you had already mentioned, um, any more practical steps and tips? What, what should you do to get your community aware, your friends and family members aware of this, and how can you organize against it? Are there any programs or any websites? What's, where do we go? Where do people go? Let's finish off with action. There are a number of things that we can, we can accomplish because we've already accomplished many things through education and that sort of thing. One of our main uh, projects of the John Birch Society is to get us out of the United Nations, which may seem to many people insurmountable. But really, when you look at it, you have uh, the World Health Organization, you have UNESCO, you have uh, UNICEF, you have uh, the Paris Peace Acc- uh, Accord, and all of those, which, due to public uh, education, we at least temporarily got out of all of those organizations during the Trump administration. It would never have happened if the American people weren't educated to the level of understanding the dangers of those things. Now, Biden's gotten us back into them. But things can be done. All you have to do is to go to jbs.org and take a look at the agenda projects of the John Birch Society and see how we implement these things, including the climate problems. But keep in mind, the UN is the ultimate end of all of this. Everything is aimed at that. All the environmental organizations and everything else want us to get involved with being uh, controlled by the United Nations. So that is the ultimate prize, if you will. So go to jbs.org and look that up and, uh, and see how you can get involved. All it takes is just educating enough people and then organizing them in your community to get these things done. And if enough people do it all over the United States, things will start to happen. I've seen it happen over and over again. Just takes enough people getting out there to do it, reading the right material, getting materials from uh, jbs.org that are are easy to read, you know, little reprints, single sheets of paper and that sort of thing that will hit on one particular point in the environmental movement that will 
gradually get people aware of what is all going on in the environmental movement. And then once they understand, find those people that will join with you in organizing with you in educating the opinion molders and office holders in your local area. Art, thank you so much for taking the time. And also, I'd just like to point out that we have links to all these uh, resources to jbs.org, to our action projects, and we encourage everyone to read the book over action projects and even go to the, the UN's Agenda 2030 PDF of, of their plan. Again, it's really, really crazy how much control they mean to exert over us. Thank you, Art. Thank you. Are you concerned with where America is headed? If not, you should be. So let's get busy on solutions. At the John Birch Society, our staff and members have over 60 years of experience in pushing back on outrageous abuses of government. Our tools are truth and education. Our methods are tried and true with scores of successful operations. Join together with the tens of thousands of members of the John Birch Society nationwide to make a difference. We have professional staff strategically placed all over the nation and will provide the training you need to be a success. We will provide the materials you need to be a success. We will provide the esprit de corps that comes with working in concert with tens of thousands of members nationwide on the same goals. If you want to bellyache and do nothing, don't join because we don't want you. But if you're a patriot, and you love our country and want to preserve the blessings of liberty to the next generation, then we need you in the fight today. Not soon, today. Let me clarify, today. Go to jbs.org and get involved right now. And remember, the Constitution is the solution.